a lot of people listen to these podcasts while they're driving so i'll have to be very careful with the length and um and and and, and the volume i don't want to cause any sort of despair on the m25 of anybody or or, or anything or think they've tuned the radio out um national grid was played on the i think it was the today program on radio four really eight o'clock in the morning in about uh, 1999 and loads of people including some one of my relatives <laughs> heard it and, and she, she said uh i nearly crashed the car you know <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so unexpected uh a number of reports of people nearly crashing their car and then it was also some tracks were played on the kind of community radio station in brighton and it crashed the transmitter I feel like that that's a massive achievement is convincing the automated system that something's terrible's happened in the world and then it has to kind of kick in some kind of dead man switch or whatever. But yes, amazing. Well done. That's the peak of your career. To a lot of people whose work is difficult to describe, and Joe Banks, who works as disinformation, certainly falls into that category. The best I've come up with is Poet of Noise. Thank you very much for joining us today, Joe Banks. Yes. Yeah, nice so, to be here. Um, yes, and it's been an absolute uh, privilege to get you. And also, welcome along my co-host, Leela Johnson, as well. Hi, nice to be here, uh, uh, featuring on this amazing podcast. So, it's a real honour, actually, genuinely. Well, that's, oh, well, thank you. And... A little bit about you, Joe. From what I understand, is that you're sort of you've been described as a poet of noise on Channel Four Television. Um, you're um, it's actually Sky TV that one, but yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, Sky yeah, TV. Sky it's TV. a it that, is yeah. a trademark of mine to get a lot of things wrong very often, so uh, not not to worry about that at all. But um, yeah, so how did you end up um, at, at, on 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 Sky TV uh, having to uh, explain yourself, Joe? Yeah, I, I got in. Harry Kunzru was a writer on Mute magazine in the sort of early days of my project, which is called Disinformation. And, uh, you know, I guess he kind of, see, I think I sent him a, um, what do you want to call it, a, re a review copy of one of the early records I did in the post. And uh, I don't know if it came about as a result of that, but anyway, he invited me to be on this, be interviewed on this show that he was doing for Sky TV they were doing a kind of arts and culture program in about I guess 1999 um, and he came up with this statement poet of noise which sounds good you know 
It certainly does. That, that should sit yeah. near. Well, I, I hope that stays on the T-shirt because yeah. it's it's a very apt description of of of, of what what you were doing. So for to yeah, pretty much yeah, it was pretty yeah. spot on. You know, I mean that was you know I'm not saying I'm the poet of noise per se, <laughs> but I mean you know that 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 was the intention was to find you know stuff that was kind of exciting and mm. interesting about material that, that previously people mm. would have dismissed. So you know, mm. hence noise. Yeah. So how were you doing that? Were you sort of um you know you you were capturing what we call what is it a very low frequency uh yeah. noise on on recordings yeah. so um how how are you sort of harvesting them um well it's actually really it was really simple that was one of the things that was kind of appealing and sort of um uh fortunate about the whole kind of approach i was kind of trying to make electronic music or ambient music with the you know the cheapest means possible how this actually came about in practice um was that i saw in 1994 1995 there was a program on channel 4 called electric skies right and they had this item about a phenomenon called the schumann resonance um which is essentially a kind of electronic drone that can be picked up on very low frequency radio receivers it's produced by the interaction between lightning and the earth's magnetic field Every lightning is like a little radio antenna which, which transmits radio waves over a broad range of frequencies. It turns out the Earth is tuned in the Schumann resonance to one frequency. And just as you tune in a radio station on your radio, you can tune in the Schumann resonance at eight cycles per second. And at that frequency, you can listen to effectively all the lightning on the planet. It's this interesting phenomenon that just, you know, I sort of watching this documentary, I thought, right, that's drone music. Yeah. So I went out the next day and didn't really know where to start with this kind of stuff. I got some copies of Shortwave magazine, um, which was at the time, you know, I could guess pretty much the lowest in the kind of pecking order of kind of nerdery, you know. Anyway, got some copies of uh, Shortwave magazine from the local newsagent. And they it referred to in the back issues, they had a series of articles from previous issues about called... Um, uh, about radio science observation. So I ordered the back issues and that's basically where most of the sort of repertoire of my early disinformation stuff came from, was, was from those three articles in Shortwave magazine and they described, you know, how you could build homebrew radio receivers for um, essentially, you know, kind of, you know, nearly zero budget. technical simplicity so after i've been into this kind of thing for some time i realized for instance that you know there's a whole literature and kind of enthusiast scene around recording radio setup that were much more accessible so for instance it turns out that there's this whole scene uh for enthusiasts who are involved in recording naturally occurring radio phenomena there's a lot of literature about 
um, circuit designs and radios that you can build for that purpose. But in fact, you can, it turned out after a, maybe a year of experimentation or something like that, I found out that you can um, essentially build a really good VLF broadband receiver just by taking any portable recording device and attaching an antenna to it, taking it outdoors at night as far away from power lines as possible and attaching one side of the, if you sort of got the input socket and you attach one wire from the input socket to a ground stake, which could literally just be a question of banging a stake in the ground and putting a kind of um, jump lead on it. And another side of the input socket to a crocodile clip putting the crocodile clip on a fence in the countryside at night you can actually pick up sounds of uh, stuff to do with the aurora and magnetic storms and lightning strikes bouncing around the earth's magnetic field in space it's amazing like that. I love so that. this is fascinating subject matter um to describe it as ambient music might be a bit of a stretch but it's certainly comparable with wildlife recording mm. right um, you know, which is an interesting artistic field of artistic practice in its own right. Mm. Um, one of the problems that arose with trying to uh, sort of conduct these kind of experiments is you get mains hum all the time. Anything you do in, in this kind of field picks up loads of mains hum. And then after a while, it started to dawn on me that I could do stuff with mains hum. I borrowed a shortwave radio off a friend of mine. Um, in fact, Mike Harding, he ran the record company that I was doing stuff with at the time, Ash International. Um, and uh, I got a little, uh, from an advert in the back of Shortwave magazine, I got a little so-called VLF converter, which converts the shortwave radio to, doesn't work very well, but you know, it converts the shortwave radio to pick up a very low frequency signal, which and the VLF radio band is where you get most of the noise from sort of so-called atmospherics or naturally occurring radio signals. Um, so, you know, I was able finally to record uh, some atmospheric stuff, natural radio, but I also found that I could use the shortwave radio to, to not only pick up really loud signals from main time, but also to kind of play them in the manner of a very crude musical instrument, because it's a, a, a sort of... Um, ring modulator circuit in the shortwave radio that's used for tuning morse code so if mm. you were using a shortwave say like a, on a ship at sea to pick up morse code it might come in at kind of weird audio frequencies due to sort of modulation effects in the atmosphere so there's this little button you can roll from left to right to sort of shunt it up or down in frequency so that you can actually hear it properly and i could use that for getting the mains hum and then kind of playing it and that so I've got this and it's really distorted so it sounds you've got first of all mains hum is a musical note right so the it's pretty much the lowest g on a piano keyboard it's sort of slightly sharp but you know mains hum is 49 hertz, uh, 50 hertz and the lowest g on a piano keyboard is 49 hertz so you've got this musical signal and then you can use this so-called upper and lower sideband filter to actually play it like a kind hmm. of musical instrument i actually did that in a few um, sort of concert performances. One, the first one was at a club called Disobey, um, 1996, and then I did one at the Royal College of Art and a place called the Lewisham Art House, um, David Land Art Centre, now closed down in Brighton, and a few other places like that. And it was pretty intense. It's, it's really distorted the signal, so it's uh, it's got this ferocious kind of um, 
sound that's uh, really kind of appropriate to the image, it's the notion of the sort of the, 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 the sort of power of the national grid. You know, hmm. this real kind of feeling of sort of en of ferocious energy. Hmm. Um, and then later on, I started using um, just a mains transformer to achieve a similar effect because it was basically the radio equipment was it's big, it's heavy, it's unreliable, it's difficult to get it to venues. It's difficult to get it to do the same thing for each performance every time. So then I started using a big old um, sort of laboratory power supply type thing that you'd have on the bench in the lab. Um, and because that produces continuous output of, of uh, unrectified mains alternating current, which is basically a musical note that goes like that, but really powerful. Um, I found that I could feed that into some guitar pedals and get some really interesting effects. younger was there any sort of like bits of tech that you were messing around with was going to send you off down this path at all yeah i think um with hindsight there are some things that i did when i was a kid that um sort of re-emerged later on in the disinformation repertoire um so you know i wasn't you know particularly computer literate or um knowledgeable about electrical engineering or anything like that but i had kind of messed around with electronics kits torn apart old radios and TVs, not being able to put them back together again, stuff like that. And I got bored, you know, my dad bought himself a train set on the pretense that he, you know, that it was for me. <laughs> right. Excellent, yeah, yeah. So he bought this train set and it had a, uh, a 12 volt AC alternating current transformer on it. So it wasn't a DC transformer, it's an alternating current transformer. And I got bored with the train set, unscrewed the connectors on top of the transformer wired it up to some loudspeakers that I nicked out of my granddad's dad dead radio that was in my dad's attic and got you know these ropey old loudspeakers connected them up to the transformer and it's like it makes it sound like boom <laughs> amazing sound yeah yeah these two speakers rocking up and down uh sort of alternating up and down um and eventually smoke starts coming out the back of the loudspeakers and there's a big bang right <laughs> <laughs> I did that bit at the beginning of Back to the Future where he um, goes around the doc's house and wires up his guitar to the massive amplifier and everything falls over. <laughs> Very much like that, I'm imagining. Yeah, amazing. There's, there's a scene in, um, uh, what's it called, uh, The Blues Brothers, where they, they, they park the... It's, it was a scene that was cut from Blues Brothers, so you find it on the special features 
of you know like the deleted scenes where they park the car in the transformer station so that it can kind of like absorb by mystical power some kind of magical process absorb the power of the national grid <laughs> or acquired kind of magical properties as a result of it and it's kind of a bit like the you know the shtick yeah. that i do yeah it, but anyway so it, you know yeah. i was doing stuff in uh, uh, gallery installations and or i came to be doing stuff in yeah. gallery installations and gallery installations and performances which was actually pretty similar to what i had done as a kid um i was able to connect things like mains transformers or radios to bits and pieces of musical equipment so you know everybody in our kind of peer group or whatever was kind of messing around with music and stuff like that but nobody really had the money to kind of buy fancy equipment so you'd always be borrowing bits and pieces off your mate you know so you know with the um that that was basically what happened with national grid is it's it's quite so like if you're an actual guitarist you can pull out the jack lead from the guitar and you put your thumb on the end of the lead and it goes and it's you know your body is acting as a kind of radio and it attracts a, a as your body is a acting as a kind of antenna and it attracts mm. a radio signal that's produced by main time and it sort of injects it into the guitar lead and some guitarists actually use that for tuning the bass guitar you know because mm. it's musically pure like, mm. oh. yeah. so. i think it's interesting it's like when you um i think we joe we both know sarah anglis um, you must know uh, sarah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um but when she um when i've, I've had you know i've invited her to a few events that I've done and she's played the theremin and um, there's always a bit at the beginning where she has to tune the theremin to the room and it's, it's so interesting thinking about actually everyone's involved in the sound like you know yeah. the the it's it's sort of like lighting design but for audio is everything in the room affects how, how things sound it's like it's something you don't really think about because it's not it's, it's not um yeah I think a visual culture um sort of theremin type stuff and the the, the kind of uh, musical ideas that i've developed in the past is that the theremin requires a great deal of skill it's a different skill i, I would say with putting yourself it down it requires <laughs> a lot of imagination but it doesn't require technical skill you know so the the the, the kind of skill if you're being kind to me is in the whole process <laughs> in, in the details of the execution mm. she's got me you know mm. so, yeah, she's a proper musician and i'm not i was listening to um sense data and perception by your disinformation yeah. project what normally comes out of my speakers is something predictable in a rhythm yeah. uh what came out this time was it was sort of like um um, listening to, to to things that you sort of like try and tune out in life, you know, because I work with radio and yeah. interference often causes problems in my day to day life. If I've got interference on a circuit, it causes problems for things. But actually to to listen to the problems for pleasure was quite a juxtaposition. Yeah, I mean, I remember sitting on the. Um, could it have been the Victoria line? I'm not sure. Uh, no, Bakerloo line, I think it was once. And there were two guys from London Underground chatting, uh, you know, a couple of seats away from me saying, what, what's your favourite, the sound of your favourite tune? What's your favourite underground line by sound? Yeah, chosen by sound, I think. Love that, yeah. I think it's, most people agree that the Victoria line sounds the most horrible, I think. <laughs> um, and I think they said that the Bakerloo line was their favourite one, but I, I should have taken some notes. But it's equivalent to that kind of thing um sense data and perception was a later disinformation 
CD and it was made by me remixing the earlier recordings. So I was taking that kind of stuff and making it a bit more musical. So weirdly, quite a lot of it actually has time signatures. Um, you know, it's kind of composed to an extent. Mm. So, um, you know, awesome. I took these recordings of sort of what you might call pure noise and kind of chopped them up on a computer and reassembled them a bit like you would with techno, but with very different sounds. You know. and people taking kind of abstract pictures of the pavement and things like that sort of thing is quite popular isn't it? And, and yet there isn't really a mainstream audio equivalent of people I mean yeah. in your world it probably seems like there is but like <laughs> for people who are used to the visual art world I suppose which is probably most people it's it's quite hard to um, come across a lot of the similar sort of things to what yeah. you do and it's a shame because we are constantly surrounded by sound I and mean, one of my favorite things is this idea that there's so much in the world that is everything you're experiencing all the time is interesting like everything you walk down the street there are so many things of interest that you can stop yeah. and think about for hours um but we're sort of just always on our little you know um obsessive little path to whatever we have to do next or whatever but like yeah yeah, it seems a real shame that, and actually it makes me think of what you said about the nature, for the, the sort of nature recordings um, aspect of it too, because it's a similar kind of thing, like people, some people really pay attention to what's going on in the natural world, and that's it's really important to have those people. Um, and uh, yeah, and similarly, I think it's really important to have people like you who are actually listening to the world. <laughs> when, when I was, you know, the early days of the disinformation thing, so sort of 95, 96, 97, I was reading quite a lot about wildlife recording and some, you know, some very interesting people. I think, for instance, Chris Watson's very well known. And there's a guy called Charlie Krause, I think, if memory serves. And there's a very interesting feature in the Smithsonian magazine about the, the sort of ethics and philosophy of wildlife recording. If that doesn't sound too far-fetched. So, you know, I was kind of influenced by some of those ideas at the time. But, and I guess what I was trying to do was do an urban equivalent of that. And I, you know, I did think or hope, and to some extent, I think I succeeded in, you know, using these kind of sounds to, to communicate something about the nature of urban experience. You know, that it's all on one level very, very claustrophobic, but on the other level, sort of potentially somewhat sort of transcendent as well. You can sort of, you know, relax into it and sort of rise with it, and you know, it's all. You know, I don't want to overstate it, but there's almost a kind of psychedelic. Notes. somewhat kind of uh, one of an early review in the Wire magazine said it made a connection between National Grid and trance techno you know, like acid house kind of sound and that, and that was very much 
part of the influence is that that approach to having a really immersive um, physical uh, strong physical vibration was very much influenced by acid house and uh, to a slightly lesser extent by kind of uh, dub reggae as well mm. i've only mm. ever been to one dub event but it was pretty amazing mm. yeah. so that yeah. kind of thing you know it was very much in my mind when i was doing that kind of stuff mm. you know going to these um acid house events in brighton that were just kind of extraordinary physical experiences you know my first uh my first sort of like a memory of someone terming VLF was in, in common sort of like uh, on, on the radio was uh, people were trying to to weaponize VLF because it can create feelings of despair in people. Is yeah. this the same sort of thing that's causing um, a trance like state in people who are listening to uh, sort of like Acid House or, or, you know, like a dub sort of thing? Yeah, don't know is the answer. Yeah. Um, there's a lot, there's quite a lot in kind of almost there's a sort of you know, almost new age circles about sort of frequencies of sound and radio and electromagnetic phenomena and things like that. Um, I guess you call it kind of fringe science type stuff. And, um, you know, some people believe there are sort of certain kind of magical frequencies, right? So for instance, human resonance often gets mentioned in that context. Um, as being the, the, the kind of sound of the earth sort of thing. And it's not actually a sound per se although it can produce one i'm not really I, i'm not convinced that these kind of phenomena really produce any very distinct physiological effects vlf radio has been used a fair bit for military purposes but it's for like communication with uh, nuclear submarines and stuff like that mm. so vlf radio waves um by virtue of some of their physical properties, they can penetrate seawater. So, um, to a, to a short, to a shallow depth, um, it's not that that's not used as a weapon. There's, there's, mm. there's a thing that received a lot of publicity in New Age circles and, and also on mainstream TV called Harp in Alaska, which was a military project, um, and it was to do with kind of using VLF. Um, ELF type radio to kind of heat up the ionosphere to sort of charge up the upper atmosphere with electricity. The purpose of it is some quite interesting physics involved was, was to actually, as far as I understand it, that would that would cause the ionosphere to physically expand as it got hotter and therefore come closer to the surface of the Earth. And the Americans thought that they could use this for ascent to improve the um, acuity of over the horizon radar that they were sending over the North Pole to try and see what was going on in Russia. Mm. You know, there's some pretty interesting stuff going on there, but I, I, I'm not really convinced there's anything um, in this area that shows uh, convincing evidence that there, you know, there's really kind of like any kind of mind control or mm. you know, uh, emotional minute or potential for kind of controlling people's emotions or thoughts or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I think it's mm -hmm. pretty much an urban myth, you know. You've, you've, you've done some interesting sort of like, uh, been on your own voyage with, um, I, I believe, like a phenomena called EVP as well. EVP is a sort of field um, referred to as electronic voice phenomena research, whereby people who are interested in this think that they can use radios to record voices of ghosts, right? So this kind of follows on quite smoothly from the other stuff that I was doing with messing around with kind of cheap electronics and stuff and radio equipment and things like that. 
um, because um, EVP demonstrations whereby you set up a uh, typically quite a poor quality radio and then you tune its kind of random frequencies and then pick up distorted voices and then convince yourself that you're listening to in some cases literally your deceased ancestor um, these demonstrations do sometimes work um, and they can be quite convincing especially you know it's, it's sad to say it, but especially if it's somebody who's recently bereaved and they really want to believe in this evidence you know the underground music scene is sort of somewhat socially overlaps with with um you know the kind of um you know uh, how, to, how to describe it kind of alternative science type stuff i've read an article in scientific american magazine which was written by a guy called sean carlton um, and it described the work of an american psychologist psychoacoustician called diana deutsch and she'd prepared these recordings of kind of ambiguous speech sounds. So they're like very, very garbled um, fragments of speech that have been assembled in a collage that kind of resembles avant-garde music, you know. Um, and when you listen to these recordings, you pretty reliably hear all kinds of random stuff, you know, some of which um, either subtly or in some cases quite strongly resembles actual speech. But the nature of the speech varies with time so you hear different things at different times and it varies from person to person so the material is exactly the same but different people hear it as saying different things um, and you know this seemed to me to offer an explanation for evp phenomena whereby people listen to these record these distorted voices on radios and then listen to them over and over and over and over and over again and convince themselves that, that it's somebody actually talking to them somebody from the afterlife talking to them. So I developed this project. You know, the metaphor that springs to mind or sprung to mind straight away reading this article was like the Rorschach inkblot test where you you know you look at a, a symmetrical inkblot and some people see a ghost and some people see an angel and some people see a you know, the face of a monster or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I developed this project. I started giving a talk under the title Rorschach Audio um, whereby I played the Diana some EVP recordings and then I played the Diana Deutsch recordings you know and the audience can hear this stuff kind of happening to themselves in real time and eventually develop that into quite a, a sort of involved research project you know, and wrote a book about it eventually mm. as well despite my own initial skepticism it turned out to be very interesting listen to the following sine wave speech sequence then decide what meaning if any you think you can discern now listen to the original recording from which the sine wave speech you just heard was manufactured as follows in psychic research the emotional distance between the researcher and his subject is inevitably diminished until it is no more than the distance between any two persons. The acquiescence of the subject to the demands of the researcher comes nothing more nor less 
than an individual act of faith, of love. If there can be no love between researcher and subject, there can be no experimentation. Finally, listen to the sine wave speech sequence again. So, when you know what the original voice was actually saying, and then hear the sine wave speech version for the second time, most listeners report that much more vivid impressions of meaningful speech suddenly emerged from audio material that previously most listeners found almost unintelligible. Sine wave speech demonstrations help to illustrate the extent to which our expectations, and our prior knowledge, condition perceptions, in this case condition our perceptions in the auditory realm. The dialogue extract used in this demonstration is taken from the film, Stereo, by David Gronenberg. The, on, on, the, on the EVP side, I think there's, it, it's, it's a lot to do with uh, suggestion. Whenever they do an EVP recording, they're never doing one in, in Lakeside Shopping Centre, are they? They're, they're always like in, in a churchyard or, or something like that. And that you know, and, and whenever they pick anything up, it's ne it's never like um you know it's never like a sonnet from Shakespeare. It's always like a some doom laden, um, doom laden phrase that's coming across. I mean, psychologically, it also has to sort of overlap somewhat with that whole backmasking thing, where you know there's sort of right wing evangelist in america were trying to discredit rock and roll by saying that you know all these satanists are sort of putting subliminal messages to brainwash our children yeah. sort of thing you know so the, the kind of imagery of evp tends to kind of hook up with that um so-called backmasking business to some extent and of course some publicity hungry heavy metal musicians were delighted to oblige <laughs> by by put actually putting hidden real hidden messages in their music <laughs> There, there is an overlap though in what you do and in like i feel like you're a sort of EV, evp researcher like not, not a not a um spiritual one but it's a similar kind of thing you're bringing things from another world into yeah. the world of consciousness or the world of our current hearing or something like or a cultural world or something you're, you know you're 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 pulling messages over from the other side somehow a medium <laughs> it, it's really by the other side it's really the subconscious right? okay yeah so I, I guess the sort of perspective that i developed is i sort of did a lot of reading um about psychology of perception uh, and got interested in auditory illusions so how people mishear stuff like this uh and then visual illusions sort of equivalent visual illusions and you know the mind um basically operates through you know it's bombarded with information all the time there's far too much information for us to be able to sort of consciously process all of it all the time so you both interpret and whittle down um and make meaning out of and chuck out the junk 
by a, a sort of process of projection and a, pro a better phrase is a process you use intelligent guesswork. And the phrase that's used in psychology is perceptual hypotheses. So hypothesis meaning guess and you know you you constantly project these perceptual hypotheses out into your environment to make sense of the information that's coming into your uh, brain. Um, but one of the things that's slightly counterintuitive about this is that you perceive all this guesswork as being reality um, mm. and that you know what you perceive as being reality is a, a sort of composite of all these guesses um, and the guesses are almost always accurate so you know you think from you say it's guesswork you think it would be wrong but actually it's almost always right you know so you know the edge of the table is where you think it is you know the, the, the person you're talking to did actually say what you thought they said um so it's only under the you know the brain is extremely good at sort of making plausible representations of the external world assembling them from from all these these guesses um so you're only very occasionally aware of the the illusory nature of this guesswork when it, on the very rare occasions that it makes a mistake and normally you get things right so you perceive you know reality as a kind of seamless illusion in a sense, but you're, but you're not aware of it being an illusion. So that's more or less brought to the fore with the Rorschach Audio Project because of the, you know, that, that's the kind of propaganda point that I'm trying to make is to, to sort of essentially inform people about psychology perception. But it's also relevant with the disinformation stuff, which is more like pure art, because um, you know, the subjective reactions that people have to, for instance, experiencing powerful sub bass or something like that also come from the subconscious mind, you know, so that's something that's very interesting. Um, so, you know, one of the ideas I developed in the blurb for National Grid is that um, I use the phrase infant fetal hypnagogic sense memories, I think was the phrase I used, you know, that it's literally like if you're in a dark room, you know, like a pitch black exhibition space and you hear this kind of like deep um, rumbling sound um, with a sort of rhythmic pulse in it, it's, it's kind of like going back to the womb, you know. Hmm. It might sound a bit far-fetched, but this is actually a technique that's used with severely autistic people by um, a kind of music therapy practitioners and stuff. So, you know, I'm trying, I guess I'm trying to kind of tap into something you know, quite primal in the unconscious mind, you know. Could be that um, I'm sort of beginning to think that, you know, like these constant sounds of us, uh, you know, the VLF or the, um, the 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 heartbeat or the rhythmic bass that you explained in a moment ago about going back to your womb. Um, I'm just wondering if it's like a like a, a dead man's handle um, in, in, the, yeah. in the effect that if, if it actually stopped happening, whatever it was, you would yeah. sort of like subliminally behave differently. You'd begin to panic in some way. I mean, on a very subtle level, I think that's true because, you know, we say, for instance, at Fabrica Gallery in Brighton in 2001, they ran National Grid for five weeks. So it was literally like never turned off for five weeks. And I did it in the foundry sub basement, this sort of bar and culture space in Oxen. For four weeks, it wasn't turned, it wasn't switched on continuously for four weeks. And when you suddenly switch it off, you do kind of panic slightly, you know, because you get so used to having this um, repetitive sound as part of your environment. You sort of absorb it into your mm. sense of 
whatever, and then when it's gone, there's a, a, an immense sense of absence. You, you, know, you adjust to normality again in about 10 seconds, you know. Um, but, but yeah, that, that's definitely mm. the case. And I mean, there is an argument that, that, you know, essentially people, most people have kind of tinnitus sounds in their nervous system all the time, but that we've learned to tune them out. Um, and that can be demonstrated in some laboratory experiments, you know. So, in fact, weirdly, there is a kind of background noise going on all the time that we, we learn to, to ignore mm. in our nervous system. You know? Have you ever, Joe, have you ever been in one of those chambers, I forget what they're called, um, where they tune out all sound and you start to be able to hear your own blood and stuff? You know, uh, you know what I mean? Chamber. Yes. Yeah. I have. It didn't really work for me because I've got um, I've got mild tinnitus. <laughs> well, did it did it work in the sense that it made the tinnitus seem a lot louder, or did, was there any effect yeah, at all? You, you need to be able to hear total silence for it to work. Right. Oh, that's a shame. What Layla's referring to is that you know this. I think I don't know if he discovered it, but there's um, uh, audiologist, psychologist called Pavel Jastrobov who who found out that. Um, if you put people in an anatomic chamber, then they, they essentially all start to develop temporary tinnitus, and, and your sense of uh, hearing becomes, you know, more acute. So you can hear your own heartbeat, and you can hear, uh, like Carl said, you know, your own circulation, which can be quite alarming for some people. Some people really don't like it. Um, it didn't work for me, but it evidently works, <laughs> works for some people. I really want to try it. Um, I mean, sadly, just before lockdown, I was I kind of applied for uh, an artist residency type thing uh, at the uh, former British Telecom or Post Office research station at Marplesham Heath, mm -hmm. uh, where they had an anechoic chamber and lots of really interesting electronics, and they were going to close it down, in fact, demolish it a couple of months after. Uh, you know, they were just sort of quickly trying, this organisation was tr quickly trying to get this artist project in before they knocked it down. Um, and then Covid came and I, I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Martlesham would have been a lovely uh, setting yeah. for it as well. It's got a very yeah. odd sort of like building that's spun yeah. at 45 degrees, one above the other. And uh, yeah. I, tra I travel past it on the A12 quite, quite often. So I yeah. know that I'm just past Ipswich on the way to somewhere else when I go past it. It's just a landmark for me. But uh, it was uh, like an iron lung for a lot of the uh, people in the area to be employed employed there, that's for sure. That's, that's really interesting that you say that, yeah. Um, you, you know, it, it, for listeners, it's worth looking up the... Um, can you remember what it's got? Was it Ad Astral House or something? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, worth looking it up on yeah. Yeah. Uh, Google Images because yeah. it was an extraordinary bit of um, sort mm. of brutalist architecture. You know, really, really yeah. strange looking building. Yeah. Um, Modern telephone exchanges such as System X offer the customer many new services. At the Post Office Research Centre at Martlesham Heath, a computer-controlled experimental exchange called Pathfinder incorporates several of these. A key feature of the services, such as alarm calls, call diversion, short code dialing, call barring and repeat last call, 
is a series of recorded announcements to guide the user. You have booked an alarm call for six hundred hours. You have booked an alarm call. At first, it's likely that users will wish to hear the complete announcements at each stage. But the practiced user can complete the operation sequence without waiting for prompts from the system. You have booked an alarm call for six. But once an announcement has started, it's necessary to wait for its completion before dialing. We should stress that Pathfinder was built as a research tool. Announcement generator is a prototype of that to be used in System X exchanges. So the quality of the announcement is not representative of that to be used on System X. As in most applications of electronics technology, developments are rapid, and better methods of synthesizing and digitizing speech are becoming available. Two new buttons, a star and a square, have been added to the standard keypad. Short code dialing allows users to store frequently called numbers, including international numbers, against one or two digit codes. For example, here the Scottish motoring information number is being stored against short code 5. I recently found out that because government buildings didn't need plan permission, they could just stick anything up where they liked. Um, so um, you've got some very poor examples of um, like architecture. Uh, probably made of uh, the most fashionable uh, building material of choice at the moment, racks somewhere in the middle of yeah. uh, in the middle of my local town, and then uh, yeah. you've got you know absolute great art, you know monuments to brutalism in the middle of the countryside in Suffolk. So it's yeah. uh, so it's a quite odd, and obviously the the biggest official secret in the world, the Telecom Tower. It was all done yeah. because of uh, they got blanket. Um, uh, they got they got absolute immunity from plan permission. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. Yeah, I mean the telecom tower is really a sort of cultural landmark that's kind of under underappreciated. Um, post office tower, Carl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My dad worked as a graphic designer for post office telecommunications in the sixties, uh, so he sort of started working in the. 1960s and they sort of I mean he wasn't a direct employee of telecom but he was contracted to you know design uh typeface for them so they had I don't know if you know the the double line lettering that they yeah yeah. Yep. which is you know I've got a vested interest in saying this but it's fantastic it's <laughs> really really nice bit of typography that was mm -hmm. designed by my dad and his business partner fantastic that's a great fact. I was going to ask you earlier what your parents did when you sort of talking about growing up, taking things apart and stuff. And uh, yeah, but I wasn't expecting that. That's that's yeah. an excellent thing. Yeah. My dad didn't. You don't. He wasn't involved in electronics at all. But yeah. Um, yeah, he was a graphic designer. So I mean, yeah. you know, there's this kind of mystical theory I have about art that when people are looking for inspiration, you know, they rack their brains looking for something interesting, and the, the kind of Zen fact is that, that usually what you find of like your life's destiny or whatever is what you've been sitting on 
mm. all of your life without realizing mm. it. Mm. The thing that you go out to look for is actually the thing that was always closest to home in the first place. Mm. You needed some kind of shift in perspective for you to realize what it was. So, you know, really what, although he wasn't, say, an electrical engineer, interestingly, his brother was. My dad's um, brother passed away a few days ago. Uh, oh, two, oh, and he, for years he said he worked for GCHQ, right? And for years, if you said to him, uh, Eddie, what do you do for a living? He said, Oh, I'm an electrician, right? and and he stuck to that for years and years and years and years and years. And then he started, although he worked for GCHQ, he helped MI6 and the CIA tunnel under the Berlin Wall and tap into these German telephone exchanges. <laughs> All right, he, he was just a contractor. Yeah. So he only found out about this when he read it because it was all like information was only given over on a need to know basis. Mm. So he only found out that he'd been involved in this operation when he read about it in Spycatcher. <laughs> um, Amazing. Uh, not long before he died, he said that he's, he's apparently said to my aunt, uh, Marjorie, he said, um, my dad's sister. Um, he said that he'd helped um, Alan Turing build the first digital computer in Manchester in the 1950s. Which, oh, the pilot ice. Yeah, yeah. I have no reason to think that isn't true. You know. Amazing. Wow. You know, he was of that generation that thought you did actually have to, you know, respect mm. the official secrets acts and all mm. that kind of stuff. Anyway, so yeah. Eddie was involved in, was an electrical engineer. Yeah. GCHQ. Dad was, mm. although he wasn't an engineer, a lot of the stuff that they did with post office telecommunications was to do with electrical engineering. Mm. Um, we had duplicates of a lot of his print material. So we, you know, we being me and my mum, we, we kept this stuff and I was trying to think of a way of sort of um, developing this as a kind of art project. And uh, that's where this other recording that I made called Languages Metatechnology came from because mm. I was experimenting with his sort of graphic design materials. And basically this, cut long story short, this axiom that the uh, ultimate form of communications technology is language itself kind of came from comparing his um, collection of books to do with history of printing, history of visual communication mm. with subject matter that he was dealing with um you know at the time in the sort of late 60s he was reading marshall McLuhan and stuff like that you know, so that's kind of where all that came mm. from Recording technology was not a machine, but was written language.
ultimate form of communications technology is language itself. not necessarily science, but science is always dark. of sonic art. Psychology experiments. Quote, Words themselves are weapons of sound. that was to um, sort of coalesce and sort of propagandize to some extent, you know, uh, I mean, you know, maybe people will hear the recording in, in this program, but um, somebody contacted me about that and they said it was a bit like um, uh, a Maoist propaganda style of having this kind of like, <laughs> you know, slightly kind of um, unnerving voice. Sort of, you know, coming out with these kind of dictums or actually mm. whatever. Um, but that was, uh, although I wouldn't have used that language to describe it, that was completely deliberate. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a work of propaganda. And part of the 
motivation for, for doing it and for the content and for the form and the content of that project there's so much fixation in society at the moment on people getting ahead through technology um, but you know this idea that, that uh, language is the technology that contains all others the ultimate form of communications technology is language itself is mm -hmm. that in order to really benefit from technology and to get technology to work from you you also need language skills mm. um, and to try and enthuse people about this notion that, that you know language is the earliest form of kind of really powerful the earliest and most sophisticated tool that human society because in the arts there's you know, particularly in visual art there's a lot of what you might call it, it might sound a bit far-fetched to say this but it's kind of true there's a lot of kind of anti-linguistic propaganda Sort of coming out of sort of postmodernist theory and stuff like mm -hmm. that, sort of suggesting that language is essentially completely meaningless, yes. sort of variations on that kind of thing. Yes. Contrary wise, a language is, in fact, the most powerful tool that's ever been yes. devised and placed at the disposal of yeah. operators, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think one of the recorded diktats that I listened to was it was it the, the machine is not the message or the machine is not the messenger. Yeah. Marshall McLuhan came out with this famous thing that, that the medium is the message and, and what he meant was uh, it's not obvious is that, you know, if you were talking on the telephone, he, he came up with this in the 60s, um, the, the fact that you were using the telephone, the medium, was the message because the fact that you were using it and therefore encouraging other people to engage with the medium was more important than what it is you actually said down the phone. Um, and whilst I kind of agree with that to some extent, it's also very, very, you know, so that sort of thought process has become highly influential in the arts. But from a political point of view, it's also important to remind people about content, you know, um, you know, particularly in the sort of era of disinformation. Mm. disinformation is being weaponized by all the major powers in the world you know and particularly by opportunists like trump and putin and people like that mm. um i used to, you know i give give these rorschach audio talks and i used to have a line in the talk about the interface between philosophy and electrical engineering and and you get you always get somebody who'd laugh when i said that because it's just such a ridiculous idea that there yeah. can be any connection between philosophy and electrical engineering and in fact you know, that's it's called information theory. You know, it's one of the most powerful and almost defining ideas of the 20th century. You know, mm. so there's a huge overlap between philosophy and electrical engineering. Earlier on, you said about uh, your earlier VLF work, where you're using sort of like you were you were you coupling one side up of um, of a recording equipment, maybe to a ground plane, and then the other part you were clipping onto a fence. Yeah. Um, I've heard a similar story about that for people who can actually they feel that they can they they can hear music in their heads. Yeah. I don't, and and it turns out is it something to do with like the saliva and the filling in their in their mouths is is creating a, a radio receiver. I, mean, that's, um, I think I'm right in saying that's the kind of story they they would discuss it in um, yeah things like shortwave magazine or hmm. some of the earlier um radio uh, magazines from the 50s and 60s and stuff like mm. that i think that um if you've got a filling with metal in it 
and then you've got a filling with um, ceramic and metal in close contact. It can produce, a, it can behave electrically a bit like a transistor, hmm. and it can demodulate a radio signal. So weirdly, um, you know, people, you know, there's a sort of unfortunate overlap with with sort of some mental health issues. You know, that some people you say they're hearing voices in their head and not necessarily nothing. You know. Yeah. I know it's very, very, very rare with kind of spontaneous demodulation of radio signals. I mean I've mm. heard stories about bed frames, mm. you know, cranky old bed frames playing a radio signal and stuff like that. It's not completely <laughs> implausible. Um, there's a there's a book, a fantastic old book I've got called Electro War by a guy called Kurt Dobera, I think he's called. And he talks about a radio station in Germany before the war and the signal they were putting out was so powerful that people in allotments nearby were just hooking up a load of wire on poles across their allotment making an antenna and and powering lighting for their garden shed Tesla spare electricity from, uh, um, you know, from this uh, big radio antenna. And there's another story that about the BBC transmitter, is it in Daventry? Mm -hmm. um, it's a big BBC transmitter station that also sends out stuff for nuclear submarines. Mm -hmm. um, and that if you were standing nearby one of these big um, transmitter, uh, big antennas that was sending out Morse code, um, the, the rivets are the eye holes on, where you get the laces on 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 the workers' boots would spark in times of the Morse key. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was just so much electricity there that it would actually demodulate into the metal on their shoes. You know, That's incredible. And produce a spark. Yeah. And yes. you know, there is also the trick where you can get a fluorescent light bulb and just kind of like wave it around underneath a, a, a pylon and it, it, at night, and you can see a glow inside the. Um, Oh, yes, yes. Scary, isn't and that's, that's something yeah. that we did to kind of comic effect in some of our performances because <laughs> you know I used to perform National Grid mm. uh, as a as a, a public entertainment and mm. uh, <laughs> yeah, used to do that for a few years and then my friend Mark Pilkington introduced uh, some effectively some new ideas to do with um, uh, using laboratory physics equipment. Mm -hmm. uh, so if, if like national grid is the baseline then we had some kind of other instruments to play with as well mm. if you see what i mean you know, yeah equivalent to guitars or something like that mm. and uh you know one of the things we do is kind of like use all this high voltage equipment and then wave fluorescent tubes around that were lighting up in our hands you know um, <laughs> which looks really dangerous it does look it's dangerous not, it's not that dangerous yeah, yeah, yeah. it's quite fun but you know mm. as an entertainment for, um, <laughs> it sounds worse than it was. Mm. I mean, you know, it, it does hurt, but not very much. So, do you, um, in your performances, um, you use um, do you use a lot, a lot of obsolete technology and re or repurposed um, equipment? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the kind of secret weapon that we had in these national grid performances was to accompany the bass drone with. Um, electrical noise from basically anything we could lay our hands on. So any old kind of old school physics lab, um, high voltage equipment. So I started going to scientific instruments fairs and buying 
you know, kind of uh, Victorian um, Windhurst machines, mm. high voltage static electricity generators. The thing is, you see in the Frankenstein films, we've got mm. these spinning glass discs that produce very high voltage, some weird process. I don't know how it works. They, they produce very high voltages just kind of from the friction of the atmosphere almost. Mm. So it's um, something out of uh, H.G. Wells' universe by the sounds of it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of Frankenstein films. Frankenstein, Frankenstein Bride of Frankenstein. Mm. You know, sort of. Kind of comes <laughs> to life. I mean, those scenes in the Frankenstein movies were actually quite similar to our performances. You know, <laughs> we didn't have a dead body. No. Not, yeah. no, no well, not at the beginning. Animate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that, that's, uh, that's good. It's, um, yeah. There's a lot of kind of obsolete um, laboratory equipment and obsolete medical equipment that we use. Mm. Um, mm. you could pick up relatively cheap. Yeah. I think it's like it, nowadays it's kind of I mean it was that, that sort of cliche of kids kids today or or even millennials today don't don't know that the this the save icon is actually a, a floppy disk and what that means they're like why is there a weird square what's that supposed to be but it's that thing of like I just feel like I appreciate now that when I was a child we had literally a metal coat hanger on the TV and you would move yeah. it around and there was like a physicality to it and you could yeah. actually find the frequency with your hand you know there's something very like real about it um the unfortunate yeah. paradox of that one was that you know you, people would unwind a coat hanger wedge it in the aerial socket of the TV to improve the reception so the coat hanger would kind of wobble and then the picture would go off you get up, walk across the room, <laughs> and, yeah. um, and the picture will get better, and then you sit down. Yes, that's Because when you touch the coat hanger, you you actually become part of the. Yeah, yeah. You know, the human body is mostly made out of water, so it's actually yeah. electrically conducted. So there's this big mass of uh, sort of bag full of water, essentially, in your body that. That you know, there's all this radio signal, TV signal being absorbed by the um, by the body, and that's then injected into the antenna, and that improves the reception because you are actually becoming part of the antenna. <laughs> when you sit back down on the sofa, then you disconnected half of the antenna. <laughs> yeah. Catch twenty two. It was always the apocryphal joke, isn't it, in the Morecambe and Wise sketches and things like that when they were moving the. Or as it might have been Steptoe and some when they were moving the TV aerial for the big match, and like it was like, yeah, yeah. hold it there, Harold, hold it there, <laughs> hold it there, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know you you've got that you put that image in your mind, and we we all did that as well. You go, oh, you got a cracking signal, come and sit down, and it would be yeah. sort of uh, misty yeah. and ghosty. It is strange now how um, we've gone from uh, the, you know the, the wireless is the top of um, you know it's the archetypal best technology for many years then yeah. then things go wired and yeah. then we have like uh wired broadband and then it goes wireless again you know and it's yeah. sort of like we we seem to ebb and flow between sort of like uh getting a physical connection and then all of a sudden we we don't want to see that connection anymore we want it invisible again and it seems to go in cycles technologically doesn't it it's sort of um you know with bluetooth kind of contributes to that a bit is that you know people invent a technology and then it gets kind of improved and marketed to the general public as being an improvement. Often what's being improved about something is just that it's got smaller. You know, mm. miniaturization is you know, historically massive. Um, 
you know the, the the improvements in technology that are marketed to the general public are often somewhat illusory <laughs> you know that the many when the manufacturers say it's new and improved mm. what they really mean is they've found a way to make it out of cheaper components and mm. make it a bit smaller mm. yeah mm. um so um in some cases by no means all but say for instance with analog video equipment um often the early stuff that people mm. don't want anymore is not only cheaper on ebay because mm. they don't want it anymore but it's also better quality because the the new improved stuff that came along later and particularly the digital stuff was actually really crap you know mm. sometimes not always you know the old technology is actually superior to the modern technology all over Britain, there used to be these little electrical shops that would repair radios and stuff like that. And, you know, I remember going into a shop called Halcyon Electronics in Sutton. In the early days, of disinformation was based in Tooting at the time, which is not that far from Sutton. And the bloke who ran the shop had a degree in astrophysics, you know. Um, it's just like there's this extraordinary... Um, and say with, say, for instance, with the history of tele television engineering. I mean, television engineering... Being a TV repairman is not a particularly glamorous job, but the actual level of technical skill that's mm. required to do it is just incredible. Mm. <laughs> mm. I mean, there's this enormous body of knowledge in the community. In, you know, as a cultural phenomenon, you know, the kind of knowledge of and enthusiasm for and, and engagement with technology and its cultural products. Well, yeah, I think it, it very much is. It's sort of like if a culture didn't accept it, then it wouldn't be produced or, or consumed. So I think that's probably an excellent analogy for it. So, you know, where where do you think your next idea is going to come from, Joe? You know, I, I, I don't know what uh, preoccupations you all might have, but my problem is being addicted to eBay. <laughs> you know, so... Um, you know, I've been experimenting a lot with old video equipment. Oh. Fun, you know. So some new video projects come along soonish. Fantastic. Your your disinformation, um, your choice of like a a name for your for your projects is just increasingly appropriate, isn't it? Like I imagine at the time you probably thought this is quite good. And then like each year that passes you're like, I'm so glad I chose that because it's like <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it, it's good. It was yeah. You, you're totally right. <laughs> you know, um, it's good also from the point of view of like I've done a lot of collaborations with other people, like um, mm. filmmaker Barry Hale yeah. did a lot of stuff, video stuff for disinformation, like the uh, sort of hopefully famous, probably less famous than it ought to be, sound mirror, sound mirror. Yeah, mm. 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 Uh, Barry made that. A brand, right? yeah, yeah, so branded disinformation products. You know, it makes it easier to collaborate with people mm. because you're not kind of like saying, Hey, I'm Joe and I'm taking credit for everybody else's work, which a mm. lot of contemporary artists do do that. You know, they do this stuff and then you find out that actually they didn't do it, you know, mm. it's their mate, you know, or mm. their employee who did it. 
Mm. Um, so it's, you know, having a name like that is good. Originally, I, I sort of wanted it to be completely anonymous. Um, and the only reason I sort of put my name on stuff was for, essentially for copyright reasons. Ah. Um, and then I sort of also had the idea that, that other people could perform disinformation stuff, but mm. um, the promoters just wouldn't accept it. Get other people to do, yeah. do disinformation shows. I was just uh, thinking about it, something that uh, just occurred to me. It's sort of like you mentioned, obviously, that you're in this world where people might want to borrow some of your work and use it use it um as their own i mean have you ever sort of like had an issue with somebody using one of your samples and and like putting it in a in a recorded track or anything like that for music yeah um that has happened um obviously i like to get credited Hmm. um you know so i mean um, sometimes people have done it and you know they've they've credited me and sometimes they've they've not and i've been annoyed Hmm. unfashionably i'm something of a believer in copyright you know crazy avant-garde experiments that nobody's interested in today are going to be the cultural mainstream of tomorrow and that i've seen that happen in my own lifetime you know uh you know if you don't try and protect your stuff um not just other people but in fact the big corporations Mm. uh will will not might will Mm. profit from your ideas you know Mm. if you don't try and exercise some kind of legal mm. control over that process, um, you know, you could end mm. up getting badly burned. You know. Going back to what some of the things you said earlier on, I took apart a calculator and I got one of those crystal earpieces from an electronics kit. And I did a version of what Craftwork did when they did that pocket calculator record. Put the, the wires from the crystal earpiece on different parts of the calculator, you could get different sounds. Love that. Yeah. yeah. I love that, though, just that, like... I feel like it's only when you've got a stethoscope, like a toy stethoscope, or somehow you've accessed a stethoscope, yeah. that it occurs you to listen to things in the world. Like unless you've got something, you don't even know that you can. And um, and then as soon as you've got something, you want to listen to everything. It's like oh, I've got I've got a stethoscope. What can I, what sound does that make? And you start doing sort of you know vehicle maintenance and mm. and it's fascinating, isn't it? Like holding it up to a <laughs> like a doctor of the car. It's, uh, and it's the same thing. And, and and what's the other thing? Um, safe crackers use them, don't they? Hold them up to the yeah, listening to yeah. things. So the foundry was this uh, bar in Oxton. They uh, sort of operated as a kind of counterculture kind of culture centre. It'd be a bank, and the sub basement was a bank vault. So they did this exhibit called the Noise. And I've got this book. Uh, it's a dictionary of uh, dictionary of the underworld. So it's like, I can't remember the full title, but it's one of these kind of titles that's got about 30, le- 30 words in it. Something like the voc- being the vocabulary of uh, crooks, criminals, safe crackers, spoofs, you know, whatever. <laughs> I unfortunately can't remember the joke very well. But anyway, the noise was a phrase that was, it meant jellignite, really intense sound insulation in an old bank vault with a massive heavy steel door, you know, like 12 years. 12 inch thick steel door combination mechanism on it and all this kind of business you know mm. so I just called it the noise because it was mm. like old underworld slang for a stick of dynamite <laughs> that's brilliant i do love those uh little little idioms that they come out yeah. with um, on, on that it's good but yeah i'm sort of aware of the safes because um my day job takes me into into banks that are being yeah. used and disused and yeah. um you know, the like some of the disused banks that I go into, they've got the thick safe doors and the safe doors are left open. But um, yeah. 
it's sort of like you do you do worry that if the if that door closes behind you you know are you able to to to, to get back out a thing at the um, foundry once where a bunch of people were messing around we would encourage people to go into the installation in pitch darkness and it's got an amazing reverb in this underground space got mm. flat wall flat concrete walls so you could put um, a loudspeaker in there it wasn't a very big loudspeaker but if you tuned just the national grid thing set up to the resonant frequency of the space it would sort of self-amplify to a just an alarming extent so people thought there was a massive speaker in there yeah. go in there and the chest wall would be kind of shaking you know? would encourage people to go in there with musical instruments and and just anything that made the noise and just kind of mess around so it's like highly interactive and a bit of blackout fabric slung over the corner of the door to kind of keep it pitch black inside and then somebody sl and people were slamming the the door shut to get the sound of the incredible sound of the door slamming shut you know reverberating in the space um and this bit of blackout fabric got stuck in the door oh, no. when, um, when somebody slammed the door shut and they couldn't open the door and it's like oh you know they've got whatever you know two hours worth of oxygen oh, Fortunately, yeah, there's a bloody great you know there's all this junk lying around basement in the foundry we managed to find a crowbar and leave the door open before mm. anybody noticed <laughs> oh, you, you created the world's first escape room <laughs> where are you exhibiting at the moment then joe well nowhere uh, unfortunately uh -huh. i've been pitching my work around all over the place and uh, i approached this uh, new big new exhibition space called outernet art uh, in Tottenham court road and it's the biggest digital exhibition space in europe right mm. it's enormous and it's you know, well worth checking out um and i was pitching my work to the i went past it one day wrote down the details of the company that's organizing it looked them up online worked out their email address sent them some stuff no response you know and then just suddenly out of the blue they said can you come and do something in two days time they calculate i think that it's I think the second most popular tourist attraction in the uk at the moment that's amazing yeah. So, you know, one of the amusing things about that was that the, the video I exhibited there was um, standard definition, you know, four by three, uh, you know, record, recorded on a handheld domestic camcorder. Um, and, and, you know, the, most of the work that they're showing is kind of like 4,000 DPI or whatever. Sort of, you know, and you're in 525. Yeah, it closed. Um, it was on for five weeks and it closed. Mm couple of months ago i think there's loads mm. of stuff online though mm -hmm. no yeah the, your youtube channel is in, is incredible and uh it's like a whole you know a whole world going it's a bit of um you know it's a bit of confirmation bias for me because like i've really enjoyed like um radio and, and sound and, yeah. and things like that anyway and it's um i yeah i just find the whole concept really interesting and really entertaining that's nice of you to say that because um you know in the past you know the people got were actually involved in things like astrophysics and mm. electrical engineering and stuff like that. I've got really, pretty much completely uninterested. <laughs> I, I do. I just find that the, the whole thing maybe that does go back to the fact that um, you know a lot of these noises are unwelcome for a lot of people, so they they just want to uh, you know un, untune them in their own spare time. Whereas you know I, I you know, to, to to me and I'm sure to a lot of other people, that's like you know just 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 letting your hair down really more than anything yeah, else, letting it flow. 
you know, there's this kind of belief that there's a sort of magic frequency. It might be I don't know, mm. seven hertz or 253 hertz or something like that. So loads of videos on YouTube about this magic frequency that's either going to kill you or give you some kind of horrible medical experience or, or it's the path to enlightenment. You know, it's you know, the kind of secret to unlocking your um, stuff to do with the pineal gland or something like that, you know, and, you know experiencing a higher form of consciousness. You know, and essentially, there's nothing really different. The uh, the, the the low frequency uh, radio and/or acoustic signals, or the high frequency and/or acoustic signals, that would account for the the properties that people project onto them. So you can have the same, for instance, uh, I don't know, nine hertz audio signal. And people think it's either some kind of secret meditation technique, or they think it's very harmful. But it's exactly the same thing in both cases, if you see what I mean. So um, a lot of uh, the way people perceive things is um, to do with mindset and to do with some extent, you know, you project your own emotional reactions onto stuff, I guess, would be perhaps the best way of putting it. And that applies to the music as well. Thanks to Joe for taking the time out to speak to me and Leader about all the projects that he's undertaken. The various extracts that were taken for this podcast in appearance order were National Grid 1996-99 Harry Kunzeran Interview Sky TV 1999 Electric Skies Channel 4 Equinox Documentary Disinformation Stargate 1996 Disinformation Live in Moscow September 2000 Disinformation Doppelganger 2004 Sine Wave Speech Psycho Acoustics Demonstration 2022, Marlsham Heath, Language as a Meta Technology Disinformation, Sound Mirrors Disinformation 1997-2002 with Barry Hale. Go and visit the YouTube channel at C4I, that's uh, C4EYE, um, and see these materials for yourself. They're certainly worth a visit. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with joe banks remember if you want to support the podcast in any way at all you can either give it a like where you listen to it share it tell your friends um, give it a subscription on the youtube channel if you feel inclined you can also donate a ko-fi at ko-fi.com forward slash buy it high you can join the conversation on the discord or you can at me on x at teletextr the buy it high no limit theme tune is composed by Mr. Nisness. Bite High No Limit is presented by me, Carl Attrell, and Leela Johnson, and it is a Bite High No Limit production. And until next time, keep it blocky. still here? It's over. Go home. Go.